We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going passage by passage through this book and tackling everything that we see. And this morning is going to be an interesting day. It's the start of the next five or six weeks, probably half of those or not, if not more, where we're going to be talking about the end of time and death and judgment and some of these really heavy topics. And we're introducing that today because um, this is what First Thessalonians talks about, and even as this book is about to end, Second Thessalonians, three chapters, it largely deals with these types of questions. Now, uh, we have not been the type of church that harps on issues of, of end times or, uh, or a judgment or these types of things that are in the Scriptures. Sometimes there can be an unhealthy uh, fascination that, that churches have. Maybe you have a church background, maybe this is new to you where we break out the charts and graphs and we start talking about the end times and everybody's kind of interested in it, uh, but nobody's really growing you know, spiritually. That can happen uh, as a church. The opposite can happen too, which is something I'm admitting to this morning, which is where we kind of ignore uh, some of what the Scripture says for fear of the weirdness that it might create. And, um, and this, this is something that we can fall into. I chose 1 Thessalonians in part because we have not talked about these types of issues in a long time, and it's good. If you, if you want to talk about something, just choose a book of the Bible and go through it passage by passage, and then you're going to be forced to talk about it. Otherwise, it'll be obvious when you skip it, right? And we don't do that. So we're coming to a passage today um, and several passages of the next few weeks where we're going to deal with some of these questions of the end of things. There is a term for this in theology. It's not important that you remember it, but if you want to know it, it's called eschatology, the study of last things. And I understand that there is a weirdness factor when we come to passages like this. For non-Christians, if you're coming in today and you you don't have a life of faith and you're curious about these things, you're wondering, um, this could be a very strange thing. But even for Christians, even if you grew up in the church, we come to some of these passages, the trumpet sounds, Jesus descends, uh, the timelines, the, the, some of the language of revelation, these types of things, it can be a little embarrassing for Christians to talk about. Um, and so we want to d- dive head in onto that and talk about some of these things anyway. The question I want to pose to you at the beginning, uh, really, of these next few weeks when we talk about this is, how could it not be weird? We're talking about the end of time here, right? At time exists. That you, you know, life exists. There, it's, it's strange, in a sense, to our enlightened minds, right, of the 21st century, to think for a second that everything here is here. If we were drawing up animals with our, our, uh, our enlightened minds, we probably would never draw up the giraffe if it didn't exist before, right? Because that, that is a weird-looking animal. Uh, but it does exist. The giraffe does exist. We can see them here in our, our own zoo. Well, the thing about the end of the world is that it has to happen at some point. And how could it not be weird? Because it will be, by definition, unprecedented. I just want to put that out there at the beginning and say, let's all lower our guards a little bit and say, not so much what could happen. I mean, when we talk about these things, all kinds of weird things come up. Have you seen the movie Armageddon? You know, Bruce Willis, 
uh, Liv Tyler, they, they land on an asteroid and blow it up and, and it misses the year. I mean, this is the stuff that we're talking about. And yet it has to be true, I think, that there must be an end. And if that's true, then we got to start talking about what kind of end. And the Bible presents a certain vision, and I want to present it to you as uniquely good and satisfying and true. But we're going to need to wrestle. I'm just asking you to, to, to enter into that uh, today with a passage that will get us started with some things that we need to talk about. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. Let's read these words together. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. So on the night that, uh, that I asked Becca to marry me, my wife, I popped the question. This was in Lincoln, Nebraska. We were finishing up school. Uh, I, was, I was a miserable dinner companion that night. Uh, so I had a plan. I would take Becca out to dinner. Then, you know, we would go to a park that was special to us. And then I had all of our, like, memorabilia. We were high school sweethearts, long-distance high school sweethearts. I'll tell the full story another time. So we had all kinds of pictures from six years of being together. We had you know, all this was set up at our house, and then we had a party after that, a surprise party with friends. It was all laid out, but it started with dinner. And it shouldn't have started with dinner because I was miserable the whole time, um, and and it caused some tension. <laughs> you know, we're we she's she's looking at me and she doesn't know that I'm about to pop the question and that that's what I'm nervous about. She's like are you mad at me? You know, um, are you feeling okay? Like, is, you know, what's going on? And so the whole evening was like that until I dealt with the question, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And then the party afterwards was great. But knowing something about myself now, knowing something about just kind of how you should do things, you should deal with that, that elephant question first, and then you would have enjoyed yourself a lot more. There is an elephant in the room, when we read this passage this morning, and uh, if you don't see the elephant, don't worry, I'm going to show you the elephant, but because this is here, learning from my mistake on the evening I asked my wife to marry me, I want to deal with a question first, and then I want to preach this passage, and don't worry, it's not going to be two times as long, but I'm going to do something that I almost never do which is I'm going to split this into two parts today, and I want to talk first and give a little mini-lecture, a little mini-issue uh, discussion, because I want to deal with the elephant before I look at what actually I think Paul is talking about, because I don't think that this passage is about the elephant. 
I think this passage is about how we grieve with hope and the, the, the confidence we can have in the face of death. And that's what I think Paul is telling us. But because of where we live and when we live, there have been some issues surrounding this passage in particular that I want to talk about uh, for just a moment. Okay, enough mystery. What is the elephant? Verse 17 says this, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The verb there, caught up, when we get caught up the Lord in the air, is the Greek word harpazo. When the Greek New Testament was translated into Latin, called the Vulgate, later, that Greek word harpazo became rapeo. When Latin Vulgate was translated into English, sometimes we translate the word rapeo as rapture. And so we have this term rapture, which is a translation of a translation of a translation. And yet what it has caused in the church is for us to, to think about uh, this issue of what happens in the end, and there is a large group of people um, who believe that this is, this is something that happens before Jesus returns for the final time. There is a rapture. The word means to snatch or to grab away. And so uh, what many have, have understood Paul to be saying here is that the church is grabbed away. The church is snatched away from the world before the end of time. Really, over the last 200 years, uh, this view has been talked about uh, mostly in Britain and in America, starting in, in England and then coming over to America, that this, this rapture will be a secret rapture. In other words, what will happen is that it will be a surprise, that we won't see it coming, that suddenly people will be caught away and others will be left behind. And this is the way that we, some have understood this passage of Scripture. God secretly grabs His faithful away. They disappear into heaven. They go be with the Lord. This is the, kind of the timeline that's presented. There is a tribulation on earth of seven years. And then those that are left behind must deal with this tribulation, but they also get a second chance. And then there's a second second coming, or that would be the second coming. There's a rapture first, and then there's a second coming. And then there's a thousand years of Christ's reign on earth, and then you have the great white throne judgment, and this is the end of time. This multi-stage return of Christ has been taught for the last couple hundred years and many churches based partly on this passage where it says those who are caught up or they are raptured away into the air. This passage combined with some passages in Ezekiel and Daniel and Matthew and Revelation present kind of a picture that is sometimes, and this is the only time I'm going to say this phrase, so write it down if you want to, pre-tribulational, premillennial dispensationalism. That's what it's called. But we'll just call it the secret rapture because I'm not going to say that again. <laughs> so what I want to talk about just for a minute before we dive into what I think Paul is talking about here is that I'm going to present a view that is different than that. And I think you could tell that by the way that I set it up. But I'm not here to act superior to anyone. I'm not here for us to fight about something. Um, I'm not here to embarrass anybody that has a different opinion 
Um, this is what the church does sometimes with its particular views. The church, the bigger church, is we kind of make it fighting points. That's not the point. Many of you may disagree with me. Some of you may disagree with me. Maybe many of you. Um, and that's okay. Everybody's welcome here. But for just a minute, let's get this elephant out of the room. <laughs> I don't believe that the Bible teaches this timeline of the end of days. I don't believe that the historic church taught that there was a secret rapture. In fact, I think that the Bible teaches and that history teaches that the return of Christ to be a single event, and there's a lot of mystery surrounding it. There's a lot of things we don't understand. Certainly, we don't understand when or all of the details of what's literal and what's, what's not in the Scriptures, but there are, the outline is pretty simple. As we see in the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to say in just a few minutes, he will come to judge the living and the dead. It doesn't mention multiple returns of Christ. The ancient church taught that there is a return of Christ and then a judgment. So, why do so many people today, in our country at least, believe that there is a secret rapture of the church away into heaven? I would, I would argue it's largely because of three very successful franchises in our country. In the mid-1800s, there's a guy named John Nelson Darby. He taught some of these things. He was one of the first ones. He was a Plymouth Brethren pastor in England. And he influenced a guy named John Schofield, who then brought his ideas to America. And in the 1800s, he released the Schofield Reference Bible. And like, this is when kind of reference Bibles and uh, study Bibles became a thing. They weren't really a thing too much before this, but this exploded in popularity. And in that, uh, the study notes of that Bible, he lays out kind of the view that I just described. A little later, a guy named Charles Ryrie uh, was a student of, of John Schofield and uh, and. And then, and a contemporary of him, he released his own study Bible called the Ryrie Study Bible. That is hugely popular still. Wouldn't be surprised at all to see a Ryrie Study Bible this morning. And there's nothing wrong with having that, by the way. I'm just saying, this is this is. He took John Schofield's notes and did the same thing, and it is hugely popular. It influenced generations of pastors and leaders. One of whom was named Tim LaHaye who's a Baptist or an independent Baptist pastor who got together with a novelist, Jerry B. Jenkins, and in the mid-1990s wrote the Left Behind series, which has had a huge effect on um, our understanding of passages like this. These are 16 or 20 novels written about this, they fictionalized accounts, but they capture this idea of being left behind and the terror of being left behind. If you came of age in the 1990s like I did or even in the early 2000s, you probably at one point or another had a fear of being left behind, that you would be one who didn't have enough faith that when Christ comes back for the first time, you weren't swept away into the clouds. This was hugely influential couple of movie series as well. 80 million copies of Left Behind have been bought. That is huge. 80 million. I mean, it's not Harry Potter level, but it's next level. It's huge. The point is, uh, with this little mini lecture, 
it all comes back to this passage as a starting point, this rapture, this, this, they're caught up in the clouds in the air. And then other passages of Scripture are fit around this timeline to understand this. Very briefly, I want to give you three reasons why I do not think that this passage teaches a secret rapture, and then we'll hear what Paul, I think, has to say to us. First reason is this, and it's a big one, but it's just kind of obvious to me. There is nothing in this passage that mentions multiple comings of Christ or any gap between those who are caught up in the air and those who are you know, judged in the end, in the end of time. The simple and natural reading, I think, of this passage is that Christ comes back once. There isn't any indication of a gap between the dead being raised in Christ, those meeting in the Lord in the air, and then Him always being where He's going to be. Number two, and this is a big one as well, there's nothing secret about this rapture. If you look at the passage what he's doing here is he's saying how very public this event is. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those will be caught up alive t- together in the air. This is not a secret event. It's not, as the novels that I just mentioned It doesn't happen like an airplane pilot is flying a plane and then he's suddenly lost or swept away, taken, and others are left behind. Or a husband comes home and sees his wife and daughter are gone. It's not secret that way. There are three sounds here, the cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God. Each of those sounds in Scripture are associated with the very presence of God. He comes. He Himself, the Lord Himself, will descend. It's nothing secret. It's very public. And the third reason, and perhaps the most persuasive of why I don't think that this is teaching a secret rapture, is two very important phrases in the passage that indicate that the people of God are not going to heaven at this time. They're actually coming back to earth. Remember in the secret rapture narrative, The people of God are swept away into heaven, and then they wait for seven years, and then they come back with the Lord. But here in the passage, it teaches that the people of God are already back on earth, two different ways. First, look at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. The word meeting there is to have a meeting. There's a meeting in the clouds, so to speak. This phrase is only used two other times in in the New Testament. And in both cases, this is a meeting that people go to and then return back from. Both cases. Go to a meeting, come back with the person to the original place. That's the idea. It's not a meeting that happens and then you stay there. It's a meeting and then a return. The second phrase is this whole phrase of the coming of the Lord in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord. This is not the first time Paul has used this this word, the coming of the Lord. Perusia is the word. It's a very specific word for coming. 
It's not the ordinary word for like, I'm going going to come to the store. This is actually describing the public coming of a dignitary, of Caesar, for instance, the arrival of a king. When a king would come to a city, they would say, the king comes, and then a flurry of activity would happen. Perhaps he's returning from battle, a victorious battle. They would announce his coming. The king is here. There'd be a cry of command. The king is here. And then the king may send a messenger out to the city who would say the same thing, announcing to the walls, the king is coming. Perhaps there would be a fanfare of trumpets. And then the gates would open and the the people would stream out of the city and they would come and meet the king on the king's highway. Then they would come back with the king into the city. Together. This is the idea of parousia. This is the idea of the coming of the king. What do we see in verse 16? All these things happen. For the Lord himself will descend with the cry of command. Here's the announcement. The king is coming with the voice of an archangel. The word angel, by the way, just means messenger. It just means that there's a messenger. The archangel here is a great messenger, the chief messenger. A messenger goes to the city and says, yes, the king is coming. You heard the cry of command. Prepare the way. And then the sound of the trumpet of God. Fanfare of trumpet sounds. The gates open. And then the people of God meet the king on the king's highway, which is the air. By the way, This became the king's highway when he ascended into heaven. When Jesus ascended into the air, the angel that was there, the messenger, said, in this way you will see him return in the like manner. This is his highway. He is is king of the highway between heaven and earth. And so we meet him on the king's highway to do what? To stay there? To float? To go to heaven? No. To come back with him into Jerusalem, his new heavens and new earth. The king is returning. And we return with him back into his kingdom. That's how I see Paul laying out this passage. Now, that's the end of the lecture. I hope we can put the elephant away for a little while. Some of you like the elephant. Some of you like talking about the elephant. Some of you disagree with my version of the elephant. That's all totally fine. Uh, If you want to keep talking about it, that's fine. Uh, On your own time, you can read about the elephant. Um, If you want to talk about it at church, that's fine too. Uh, Just email me and, you know, maybe if enough of you, let's say 15 of you want to, to, to have an evening where we talk about this more and we bring out the charts and graphs, we do all those things, I will have a better attitude about it. I will do it, uh, you know, then, then let's do it. Uh, otherwise, some of you are like, I want more. And others of you are like, that's 10 minutes of my life I'll never have back. <laughs> you don't understand the appeal at all, and that's fine. Wherever you are, that is fine. Regardless of how interested you are in this topic, what I want to talk about next, I know has relevance to your life. I know it does, and if it doesn't at this very moment, it will very soon. Because, believe it or not, I don't think that Paul wrote these five verses in Thessalonians 
in order for us to have something to fight about. He didn't put an Easter egg in there, a word, a rapture that we've got to now define and, and suddenly like have opinions about. That was so far from what Paul was actually doing in this passage. Think about it for a second, because he tells us exactly what he wants us to hear, exactly why he's writing these words to the Thessalonians. He is concerned for them and their understanding of death. Look at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. This is his concern, that we think about death with hope. They have questions. The Thessalonians have questions. They were assuming, we're going to talk about the timing of Christ's return next week. They were assuming that Christ was going to come back in their lifetime. They were assuming that he would be there quickly. Why would you assume anything else if you were part of the early church, right? When Christ came, he lived, then he died, and then the resurrection happened three days later, and then the ascension happened just 40 days later. This is just bam, bam, bam. Why wouldn't he return? We saw him go into heaven. He'll return back. Why wouldn't it happen now? But it was delayed. And now people are dying. And people are wondering, what does that mean? How can you die after the resurrection? It doesn't make any sense. And so they have questions about death. And here we are 2,000 years later, still waiting for Christ to return, still with questions about death. What is it? Why does it happen what does it mean that someone is separated from us? These are relevant questions because if you're hearing this today, it means that you're alive, of course. But it also means almost with 100% certainty that you know someone who has died. And if you're too young for that to have happened or it hasn't happened for you yet, it will very soon. And when it does, you have questions Questions about concerns for them, wondering if you will see them again. Perhaps it causes questions about your own death. And here's the thing, which is amazing when you think about it. The longer that you're alive, the more people you know who die. What does that mean? Isn't it curious and also alarming? And Paul writes to say, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to know some things. I want you to have some confidences about your own death and about the death of those that you love. I want you to know some things. What hopes can Christians have about death is what I want us to focus on for the remaining minutes that we have together. And it's very important that we start this out right because the Paul says here that you grieve as that you not grieve as others who do not have hope. This does not mean that Paul says that Christians do not grieve. Sometimes I still hear this passage misquoted by Christians who would say, well, you know, my grandfather died, but he was a Christian, therefore I'm glad the Bible says he's in heaven. I don't have to grieve for him. No. Grieving is scriptural. Grieving is natural. Grieving is commanded. Grieving is common. It's not a lack of grief that Paul says here. It's a hopeless grief. 
that he wants to correct us on. Christians, in other words, grieve differently. Different than what? Different than those who do not believe. What would it look like to grieve without hope? Have you ever been around someone who grieves and yet has no hope? It's a sad thing. Usually there's avoidance altogether. If we can avoid talking about death, then maybe, you know, we can be okay. But what if you have to talk about it with someone who does not believe? I've found that there's usually about three perspectives that are presented about what is hoped for or what is believed to be the case after death. The first one would be that there is absolutely nothing, that there is a loss of consciousness. You experience nothing, and therefore that changes your life, of course. If there is nothing, then the whole bent of your life becomes stay alive and enjoy because tomorrow you may die, and there's nothing after that. Another kind of perspective is, this, is what I call the sweet darkness. But there's not nothing, but maybe there's consciousness, but it's, it's consciousness in the dark. A song that came out when I was in college, Death Cab for Cutie, maybe many of you have heard it before, where in the lyrics he says, uh, the name of the song is, I will follow you into the dark, and he says, love of mine, Someday you will die, but I'll be close behind. I'll follow you into the dark. No blinding light or tunnels to gates of white, just our hands clasped so tight, waiting for the hint of a spark. Later in the song, he says, it's nothing to cry about. We'll hold each other soon in the blackest of rooms. It's a sweet darkness. There is perhaps something there, but it can't be what life is now. What kind of comfort that is, I don't know. I don't understand that as a comfort. And then there's a third perspective, which would be that if you don't have hope, you don't believe, perhaps there is some undefined bliss. This is the assumption. When I die, it will be, I'll be placed on the best golf course I've, I've ever played. Or it'll just be me and a fly rod and a Montana-like River, or it'll be me and the knitting projects that I always wanted to finish, or you know, fill in your undefined bliss. Like it will happen because that's what I want. But of course, that's wishful thinking. It's just wishful thinking. What reason? What reason do you have to believe that it will be better for you? Some would say. Well, that's all Christians have too. It's this undefined bliss. Yeah, it's not a golf course necessarily, not the river, but heaven, they would say. Aren't Christians just as uninformed as anyone else? Aren't we engaging in wishful thinking? I understand that perspective, but it's not what Christians believe. Paul gives the reason for the hope that we have in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. His hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. And it's a hope that's built on faith. Yes, 
You can't put that into a test tube, but it's also a hope that's built on real things, a real person we believe really lived, on a historical fact that we believe is history that Christ was raised from the dead. And because he was raised, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, we will be raised in him. His death and resurrection were the first fruits. We die, and then we are raised because Christ died and was raised. There is a reason. Maybe you think it's a bad reason. Maybe you think it's something that can't be proved. You are correct. But that's what we're here to talk about. That's That's what we're here to work out. What I'm presenting to us from the Scripture is that This is the good news. It's actually gospel. That's what the word means. The good news is that we believe this is true. And if it's true, then we have a reason for hope. It's not separated. It's not wishful thinking. It's not hoping that heaven is real. It's knowing that heaven is real through what Jesus has done. And when you believe that, yes, it takes a step of faith. No, it's not something that you can reason someone with human reasoning into. It is something that God does. But once you believe that first step, then it gives hope, meaning direction to your life. Do we have questions about death? Of course we do, but we also have hopes. And as we close today, I want to give us the three hopes that I think Paul gives us here that Jesus gives us. Number one, it's this. A hope that death is only temporary. Again, hope is not wishful thinking. It's based in what Christ has done. It's based on what we believe God has done in history. A hope that death is only temporary. Look at verse 13 and 14. Notice what Paul describes death as. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Why wouldn't Paul just say dead? Is Paul squeamish about saying the word dead or dying? No, he says it all the time. Why does he use the word sleep? He does what Jesus does when he raised a little girl from the dead, Jairus' daughter. He says she's not dead. She's asleep. Does Jesus not know what death is? Does he not believe that people actually die? Paul and Jesus believe that people actually die. Why would they use those words? Because in Jesus, death has been transformed. We don't grieve as those without hope. We have hope that death is like sleep in this regard, that it is temporary. It is temporary. Sleep is a real thing. Sleep is a loss of consciousness. Sleep is like a death. There is no control in sleep. Your body does what it does, and you are brought out of it. You are raised in the morning, a resurrection from the dead. It's nothing that you can do. It happens to you in the same way. Sleep is real. It's a loss of consciousness, but it is temporary. Death is temporary. That's what Christians believe. We don't fear the absolute nothing, or the sweet darkness, or the, the bliss that's undefined. We look forward to life as we know it now again. Life is what God, God has given to us. It's a gift from Him. He likes life. He created us to be in this garden city that we live in, and this is the good place. This is the place that we return to. There's life on the other side of death, not some kind of 
mysterious life or, or ethereal life, but real life, which is good. And so death is real, but it's temporary. Number two, a hope that we will see each other again. Look at verse 16. At the end with me, he says, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. With them. The dead in Christ rise first. Then we meet with them. Christians don't think that we will see our, our loved ones again. We don't present it as a Hail Mary. We don't just empty hope that it is true. We trust that it is true. We don't wonder. We believe in the hope that we will be with each other forever. Alive or dead? Again, we're going to talk about the timing next week. Did Paul believe that he was going to be alive when Jesus came back? We're going to talk about it. But hear this, whoever is alive and whoever is dead are together in the end. Who do you know who has died in Christ? You will see them again. Hope in that. It's not wishful thinking. It's rooted in the resurrection and the timeline that Paul gives us here. Those who we have lost, those who have died in the womb, just to bring something else up we could fight about. I'm not going to fight about it with anyone. I'm going with David, who said in 2 Samuel chapter 12 about his dead son, I will see him again. He will not come to me. I will go to him. Someone who believed before his time in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. Trusting in the goodness of God and the future hope of not just being with God, but being with each other. But that's the third one. A hope that we will be with God forever. Verse 14. First, he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the first thing to note here is this. Those who are dead in Christ are with the Lord already because he brings them with him. And so it is true, the old phrase, absent from the body, present with the Lord. When we die, we go to be with the Lord immediately. But that is not our ultimate hope. The ultimate hope is the resurrection from the dead. That's what the saints who are with Christ long for now, to be reunited with their bodies, to be back on earth where there is life, but under God's kingdom. Our ultimate hope is the resurrection. But when we die, we are with the Lord. Then and then forever. Verse 17. So we will always be with the Lord. Always be with the Lord. In other words, there is a place where death cannot reach. There is a time when death will die. And it cannot touch God's people anymore. Always be with the Lord. The curse that Adam brought in that brought death is completely reversed. And Jesus comes back. He raises those who are dead. He reunites them with their bodies. And forever we're with the Lord. It's resurrection. 
It's not rapture that has our hope. It is resurrection from the dead. It's not escape from the world. It's the rebuilding of the world. The resurrection says what's sick can be healed. What's lost can be found. What we see that is broken can be mended. This is, the, this is what happens in the end. We go out to meet the Lord on His highway, but we come back to be a part of His restored kingdom when He makes life happen again. But it begins with Christ because He was raised. So when we come to Him, we put our faith in Him, we trust in Him, we give our life to Him, then we have the hope that He has, the hope that He accomplished. When He was raised from the dead, this is the hope that we have. Death will be temporary. You will see those that you love again who have died in Christ, and you will forever be with the Lord. Let's pray.